Uh, This morning, we're going to be continuing our conversation through the book of Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. And if you're a visitor here with us this morning, the conversation up to this point has gone kind of like this. In verses 1 through 4, um, we talk a lot about setting our minds on the things of heaven, not on the things of the earth. And then last week in our study of verses 5 through 11, we talked about putting off the old self and putting on the new and all that that involves. And then, and really in our study last week, um, he focused primarily on the language of putting off the old self. And uh, this week, we want to come and look at verses 12 through 17, where Paul um, would, might even be offended that we dice this up over three Sundays. It's really, I think, in his flow of logic, one continuous idea. Um, and really, we're not covering much that's new. But what I do see here in verses 12 through 17 that's worthy of special emphasis is the role that Paul envisions the body of Christ, your church family, will play in helping each one of us put on the new self. Uh, as I was thinking about these verses in Colossians 3, 12 through 17 this week, I was reminded of another passage of Scripture. We're talking about, we, last week we talked about why would Paul use this language of putting on and off clothing to describe the deep transformation that comes with the new self. We talk, covered that last week. But as I was thinking about that, I was reminded of the parable of the marriage feast in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. The the invitation in in that parable was thrown open. A king invited some people to come to a wedding feast. And not the people who were invited didn't come. So at the end of it all, the king just said to his servants, go out in the highways and the byways, gather whoever you can find and bring them. And But then Jesus says this, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Boy, that took a hard left turn, didn't it? (laughs) The conviction that I have reading this parable and the truths that surround it in God's word more broadly is that on that last day when the king comes, and if you've heard the gospel truth that Jesus died for you to take away your sins, and that you, by putting your trust in Jesus for salvation, can come into the fullness of all God's promises that belong to you in Christ you've been invited to a great wedding feast on the last day. But on that day, there will be some who will be surprised that they thought they had responded to the Lord's invitation to come. But in fact, they never really got dressed appropriately. They never responded with their lives in a way that lined up with what they confessed to be true with their mouths. They they loved the idea of being saved, but they never fell in love with the idea of Jesus as Lord. They cheerfully receive him as Savior, but they never put Christ on, they never put on the new self, and they were self-deceived. 
They never became lovers of righteousness. With their lips, they honored Jesus, but their hearts remained far away. When the master says, change your clothes, put off the old self, put on the new, all they did was dab some cologne on a pig. They dressed up their old man in their Sunday best. And rather than putting on the new self, they put on a show. They never stripped away old sinful attitudes, patterns of disobedience, the love of money, their addiction to pornography. They want the hope of heaven, but they are dressed in their hearts like this is, the ho- this is their home and this is what they delight in. Their minds are set on the things of the earth and not the things that are above. They won't change their clothes, and Jesus will say of such a person on the last day, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Or as it says here in Matthew 22, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. Guys, those are dark, heavy words. I don't want any of my friends or my children to hear that. And I would be failing you as pastor if I sidestepped the hard things of God's word and failed to speak these words into this hall this morning. When Paul says, put off the old person and put on the new, he is not talking about something that is extra or optional. Hebrews 12:14 says, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There is a holiness without which we will not see the Lord. And what I hope we will see in our text for this morning is the critically important role that the community of the local church, the body of Christ, you guys, play in helping one another put on this new self. Let's read these verses from Colossians 3, 12 through 17 together. Beginning at verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him." Uh, I sat down recently, well, within the past month or a month and a half or so, to write my pastoral report for the upcoming annual meeting. Once again, October 25th, 6 p.m. And one of my great difficulties every year in writing my annual report, and this goes back to when I first started doing it back when I was pastoring in Florida, is there are no good metrics that measure what really matters in the life of the church. For example, and this is a stat that might discourage many of you, 
I went and I put this in my annual report. I did a word count on my sermons since the last annual meeting. And the word count was in the neighborhood of Moby Dick. That's a true thing. That's a stat. But none of that measures if it mattered at all, if it made any difference. Here at State Road, we don't have any metric. There is no measure of how often gossip was heard and it died on the ears of God's people without being repeated. That, that metric will not exist in any church report in this great country of ours. <laughs> it just won't be. We measure attendance. We measure money stuff. We measure numbers of sermons. We measure those kinds of things. But nowhere do we measure if we've grown in compassion. There is no metric that I know of that will measure kindness or forgiveness it's much easier to measure failure than it is success in the work of the church. We know we can find stats on how many motor vehicle collisions there were, but how many near misses were there? Hmm. Similarly, we don't have any stats for how many people succeeded in saying no to temptation but we might know some stories from people who failed to say no. It's a difficult thing. It's a hard thing because what matters most is very difficult to measure in, life, in the church life. But I do know one way that we can enjoy the growth in kindness and compassion, but it requires some bravery on your part. We need to hear your stories, God's people. I think that in this room right now, there are people who have a story to tell about how they've been touched by being among God's people in a local church, by people who dealt with them compassionately, kindly. And I want to invite you um, to come up here on a Sunday, to stand right here in this scary place, <laughs> and tell your story. We don't have a stat line for those things, but one of the ways that we'll be encouraged in pursuing these things is if we each tell our story. So I want you to pray about it. I want you to give me a call or grab me and say, I have a short. You'll have to keep it fairly brief, but I want to hear your story. We all need to hear those stories. I think it's worth noting, though, and please see this, that before Paul mentions teaching and admonishing one another, that first, Paul writes about the fact that each one of our brothers and sisters in Christ is chosen, is holy and beloved in the eyes of the Father. Oh, he wants us to see this. Do you know who you're sitting next to? <laughs> you are sitting next and surrounded by people who have been chosen by God. They're beloved of God. They're holy. And we're living in community together. I'll tell you, it would color my view of you if you abused my child. It would. And yet we are living in relationship with God's children, and we don't often think of that. And so before Paul ever speaks of teaching and admonishing, he wants you to know, fellow Christian, who it is that you're talking to. <laughs> People who are chosen, holy, beloved. 
And in verse 12, we see that. God has made them holy, covering their sin at great expense. Oh, and they're so beloved. So before we open our mouths to admonish or teach, let's give some thought to who we're talking to. And before calling us to teach and admonish one another, Paul speaks of putting on these 10 or 11 characteristics depending on how you count. These new characteristics that in total describe something of the new self in Christ. To admonish is to warn somebody. It's kind of a heavy word that has a similar emotional profile to other words, like rebuke or correct or exhort. An admonition is a a warning. It's a clear call to someone to make a course correction in some area of their life. And there's sort of an edge of confrontation to this word, admonish. And there are other words in these verses that speak in a pragmatic, real-life kind of way to some of the challenges that we are going to experience here at State Road as we seek to live together in community as a church family. Look at some of the words Paul throws in here. Words like complaint, forgive, bear with one another, be patient, These are all words that jump out at me from this text, and they all speak to the real-life messy difficulties that we will experience as people who are living in the messy reality of putting on the old self and putting on the new. No one here in this room has stripped themselves completely of the old self, and no one here has totally put on the new. We're all somewhere in that messy, squidgy middle And in the middle of that, there's all these reversals. There's ups and downs. There's all around. It's just crazy how inconsistent we are as human beings. We're all somewhere on that spectrum of changing our clothes in Christ. We may not be who we used to be, and that's good, but we're not yet who we ought to be either. We're in this process of sanctification Remember, holiness and God's power unto godliness in the Christian life is not that we are perfect. None of us have arrived. But that we are all actively, intentionally striving to put off the old self and to put on the new. Striving. That's a messy process. And again, it's full of these ups and downs, progress and reversals, victories and failures. And do you know what I need from you, fellow Christian, in the midst of all that? I need compassion. And I need kindness. And I need patience. I need you, I need you to answer my prideful waywardness with meekness and humility. I need you to bear with me and sometimes even to forgive me. More than anything, I need a people who will love me as Christ did and who will make the love of Christ real to me. I need a people who love peace and unity along the lines of the gospel, a people who encourage me toward gratitude and worship. Guys, I need all these things. But do you know what else I need? Sometimes I need admonitions. (laughs) I need people to teach me. 
But as the old saying goes, and I'm sure you've heard this from other people in other contexts, people do not care what you know until they know that you care. Have you ever been admonished by someone who was not kind or compassionate? I'm afraid to do a show of hands. I'm sure it's happened. Have you ever been taught by someone who, wasn't, who were not themselves patient or humble? Have you ever received teaching and admonishment in a context where there was no love for you? Once again, here in the church, what is set before us is a more excellent way that is not much in evidence outside in the world. Paul, this tired, exhausted servant of God, again, like in his letter Philemon that we studied before, it's almost like he's saying, can't it be different here? <laughs> I, I, am, I have known lots of people who were lopsided in this area over the course of this life. And frankly, guys, I'm lopsided. I very rarely get this right. I've known people who were so heavy on kindness and compassion that they could not bring themselves to utter a word of admonition when it was right there in front of them. Just something in their constitution made them pull up short. They wanted to be the kind person, the compassionate person, and they could never quite get to the place of saying a hard truth to somebody. And I've known others who are just all admonition and teaching, and there is no kindness or compassion in them whatsoever. And when they speak, you automatically throw away whatever it is they're saying because you just think that inside, they are just a rough, difficult person anyway. Throw it on the pile of stuff I don't like about that one. Very rarely, and I mean so rare, it's like gold, have I received a word of admonition from somebody who is living out these character traits. But when you do, it lands with a great deal of force. It's life-changing. It's transforming. And so Paul says, put this on and then speak. <laughs> speak. I remember a time during my years at Houghton College. In fact, this is a very pivotal moment in my life in terms of discerning God's calling on my life. I was invited to give the opening invocation at a freshman dedication chapel. It was a Christian college I went to, and every year... And the freshmen would come in, they'd have a big service where we'd pray for the incoming freshmen. And my job was to give the invocation. And afterwards, when it was done, I felt such delight at having doing that. I didn't put it all together, but looking back on it now, I see the trajectory of God's working in my life that I look back on the joy I felt in giving that prayer as one of the clear indications that God was calling me to such a role among God's people in the years ahead. Didn't see it then. But such a weird wave of delight in operating in that way among God's people. But what I can tell you about that event now is I was so nervous. So nervous. <laughs> I could barely stand it. I regretted saying yes to doing it. And when I went into the hall, it was packed. Thousands of people probably. And all the freshmen, their family, the staff, the faculty, my professors. Oh, I wanted to die and curl up under the podium. <laughs> and I was waiting my turn, so nervous I could barely think. And I got up there, and I needn't have worried. I did just fine. It was okay. But guys, when I got back to my dorm room, I made a horrific discovery. 
Something today that still makes me shudder. I don't know how this happened. Truly, I don't. But somehow, there was an egg-sized smear on the front of my tie of mustard. I didn't touch mustard. I didn't eat anything that day. You could not miss it. And I was standing there as plainly as I'm standing in front of you right now with this beautiful pale blue tie with a big smear of mustard right down the middle of it. Do you know what's the most amazing thing about that? Nobody told me a thing. I asked my friends about it later. I said, didn't you see the mustard? One of my friends said, I think extremely unconvincingly, that he thought it was part of the tie's design. <laughs> You're a liar, sir. You're a liar. This is my mustard dab on blue tie. That doesn't exist. Others said, oh, I never noticed. Lie. Lie, 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 lie. Others said, yeah, we did see it, but then just kind of mysteriously, they never said anything to me. Now, guys, here's the thing. There are, there are many things that we're blind to that others see. And part of the great thing about being among a people in whom we know that they love us we know that they're kind and compassionate, but they say, <clears throat> I need to tell you, <laughs> there's some mustard on your tie. There's something I see in you that I'm, I'm bringing up because I love you. Guys, that only happens in the community of the church. It has to be real here if we are to grow in these things. This is why I want us to see how pivotally important, how critical is the body of Christ and helping us put on the new self. This is, one of the mean, this is one of the means of grace that God has given you to help you in this great endeavor to put on the new self. You need the folks who are sitting around you. And right now, this gathering here is not well designed to accomplish that. I think in other verses we could point to, this is good, this is biblical, we should gather together in just this way. However, you need something more than this in order to help you put on the new self. You need a gathering of believers where you are known and where you are growing in your knowledge of others. You're growing together. And the other thing about these 10 or 11 characteristics that Paul describes, they can only be lived out in community. I suppose you could become compassionate in isolation, but it would never find meaningful expression all of these characteristics that Paul describes at the first are meant to be lived out together, especially things like forgiveness, things like bearing with one another. Withdrawing from people is the very opposite of bearing with them. He's describing a people who are deeply engaged and committed to one another in the work of putting on the new self. I need your help to dress me. Right, Sarah? <laughs> I need your help. We need each other to put on the new self. Robert Burns wrote a poem to a louse, and I'm, we don't have any people who speak the Scots dialect here, do we? Okay, good. 
He wrote this. Well, I don't, I don't know if I could say this. Awad some power the gifty geus to help ourselves as others see us, to see ourselves as others see us. It would fray many a blunder free us and foolish notion. Please don't fire me. <laughs> Robert, it's hard to read Robert Burns in like a normal English accent, right? Awad some power the gifty geus to see ourselves as others see us. It would fray many a blunder free us and foolish notion. What he's saying there in To Alaus is the idea that it would be helpful in many ways to see ourselves as others see us, because it would free us from many blunders and foolish notions. That's what he's saying. And that's where you come in, in my life. I need you. We need each other. Verse 16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Last week we were talking a little bit about 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, where it says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. When the word of Christ dwells in you richly, and you're looking with spiritual eyes on your brothers and sisters, sometimes what will come out of us is teaching, is training, and yes, correcting, and even a hard word like rebuking. But if those words are not married to a Christ-like character, to a knowledge of love and compassion on the other end, it, it kind of all falls apart a little bit. So we need to not be lopsided as a church. We, we shouldn't go out of here as firebrands growing in our capacity to speak up and give people the business if we don't care a bit about the first things that Paul was talking about. And if we so care about those first things that we can't quite bring ourselves to say a hard thing to someone, then is the word of Christ really dwelling in us richly when that same word is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness? How can those things dwell in us richly but never find meaningful outward expression in our horizontal relationships? I can't imagine it. And it says... That here Paul combines the two ideas. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. The two go together, you see. But my time living among God's people is I'm afraid there are many who have seen the smear on my tie and just could not bring themselves to say it. I don't, that doesn't help me. It didn't help me back then. Those people were cruel <laughs> to let me go up there like that. It was mean. I do also want to just say thanks to Jen and the worship team. Here they have this word about um, tying this idea of teaching and admonishing one another to singing songs to one another, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And what a great job week after week our worship team does is bringing us words that are saturated in rich biblical truths. And those words bounce around this hall and they speak to us. And the thing I love about songs 
is they stick in the mind way longer than any sermon does. I bet many of you have caught yourself later in the day on Sundays singing the words to a song in an absent-minded moment, but none of you ever replay the words from my sermons, do you? (laughs) You're just there doing the dishes and talking, oh, remember when Josh said that? No. You guys are singing those words from the songs too, and it's so wonderful to have servants who are so deeply committed to songs that are rich, that are true, that bounce around words in our minds that are just saturated in rich biblical truth. I love it. Love it, love it, love it. But that, again, speaks to the corporate nature of what we're involved in here. That speaking of truth, singing of truth to one another. Uh, back in the back foyer, if, if you feel at all convicted about what we've been talking about, we have many small groups here that are kind of just at capacity, just they can't fit any more cars in the dooryard, um, that kind of thing. And so we have some more out there in the back foyer. And I just am going to, I didn't ask permission to do this in advance, but I'm going to embarrass some people. Just ask if you'd stand up just so we can put a face to names, okay? Um, one of the men's groups meeting here Sunday nights is led by Gabe Cheney and Mark Tark. Can you guys just stand up? So if you're wondering who those guys are, that's who they are. They're fun. Yeah. So I want you to consider signing up for that group, guys. It's really worthwhile. Uh, Wednesday mornings, very early, five in the morning, there's a group that meets at my house. And, oh, by the way, they're going to be going through a book by Ryan Lacasmo, I think, which is uh, covering some stuff in the Christian faith that's really worthwhile. I encourage you to be a worthwhile time Sunday nights to be a part of that. My group, I have on the sign-in sheet that the content will vary. Really, it's top secret, I can't say. You have to sign up to know what we're going to be studying. It's true. I can't tell you what we're going to be doing. It's not evil, but it is top secret, so I can't actually say. If you want to know, sign up Wednesday mornings, 5 a.m., my house. Usually we have blueberry muffins. Sometimes we have nothing. So <laughs> I make it very hard to go to my group, but, <laughs> but that's me. Um, also, I'd ask if Jess Blackstone and Courtney Castoni, if you guys would stand up. And also Jen Whitaker, stand up. Uh, Jen is hosting it at her house, but Jess and Courtney are leading a women's group. And remind me of the day that meets. Thursday mornings at 9.30. Thursday mornings, 9.30. It's on the thing in the back. Yep. Uh, and then Sherry Cheney, is she here today? Yep, she is. Sherry is leading a co-ed group at her home on Tuesday nights from 6 to 8. And they're also doing the Lacasmo series. Yeah, really worthwhile, good stuff. Um, so I want to encourage you to sign up for one of those. Am I, oh, um, I think there's also still room in Bill and Deb Raymond's. Can you guys stand up? Everybody hates standing up in church. <laughs> That's Bill and Deb. They're great. And they meet Tuesday mornings. What time does it start? 9.30, Tuesday mornings, right here in the fellowship hall. Okay. So if you are not yet part of a small group, really encourage you to prayerfully consider that. Each of those groups is going to be really worth your time. Uh, if you signed up to do it.